0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Topical Reflections on Music. I have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Mo Twizrar, Canadian composer and interdisciplinary scholar uh, based between Helsinki and Montreal. Thank you very much for being with us, dear Mo.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh, Well, we are going to start with your research. You are a very uh, particular researcher and uh, you have um, introduced some groundbreaking research that I will let you talk about a bit later. But to start off uh, a few music orchestrators inspired among others by theater organ improvisations that accompanied silent pictures uh, have developed over the years relatively strict guidelines regarding what type of orchestration is to be used in movies. Guidelines that have outlived the avant-garde scoring of the early 20th century and have by now all but fossilized into place. Do you think your research in orchestration holds the potential of influencing film composers' approach to scoring film music?
1: It's a big question. I, uh, I think I'm gonna give you a little bit of a circular answer and maybe by the end of my answer, we'll be able to, uh, uh, to give a definitive yes or no to your, to your question. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question because film music uh, has, has evolved, uh, I think very recently with the advent of digital technologies. Um, you used the word fossilized Uh, And and I think that, I think that you're right that many of the, whether we want to call them tropes or signs, um, uh, but many of the modes of signifying in music, uh, uh, in music written for film, uh, became standardized, I think, early on in the history of cinema and use the word fossilized. They, they, they became sort of standard uh, in the, in the repertoire. Um, So much so that, uh, and and I think I have to credit John Rea for this, Dr. John Uh, Rea, he he once introduced me to a guide that had been written in the early 1900s for film composers that basically was a a massive encyclopedia arranged by topic. Uh, And so a film composer could search up a topic, say uh, cowboy music or fireside music and have a musical example that's been prepared for them. So already this is, I think the 1910s or something that, that the, these things have, uh, have been um, frozen into place within the culture. I'm sure that they uh, have their roots uh, and, and other scholars have of course uh, uh, talked about this at length. Their roots come out of uh, the theater and, uh, and opera music. But, and so those, those types of tropes, uh, they do live on today, but maybe less so than before the 1990s. I think something happened in the 1990s with, with the advent of digital technologies that, that fundamentally changed, uh, at least to my ear, the, the business of film scoring. Um, and and the, the fundamental change was in the, the, the sort of abandoning of, the, of these tropes and these uh, otherwise fossilized ways of signifying in music the, the things that happen in a film. Uh, so maybe I could say a few words about the, the fossilized uh, items and okay. then we could talk a little bit about uh, uh, the the digital revolution. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, of of course, so I'm I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. But uh, it seems to me that in film, there are broadly three types of of modes of signification. Uh, I'm not going to appeal here to semiotic theory. uh, I really wanted you to, but okay. But but this is uh, quasi uh, semiotic. So uh, the first form we could think of is just being conventional. And that's maybe as semiotic as I'm going to get. Uh, the conventional signs, uh, of course, are ones that, that have no, no reason for being attached uh, to, their, uh, to their objects other than by, by cultural convention. Um, so they're, they're arbitrary, I guess is the right mm-hmm. word. the the proper word. Um, But I think that there are two other types of uh, signs that or or modes of of making movie music significant that composers have employed. Uh, The first is is mimetic. And so this is where the music seems to capture uh, in a way the contour uh, of a person, a place, a thing or a situation. And, and so unlike an arbitrary or a conventional sign, there, there is some sort of association between what is being signified and the music that's aiding in that signification in terms of shared features. Uh, we can think for example of uh, things like flying or waterfalls when they're filmed in music. We, we tend to have film music that accompanies these like the, the long shot of a of a waterfall, for example, where the music tends, we might say it behaves something like water falling. So we might get descending passages. We 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 might get um, a, a sort of polyphonic texture uh, that that that's hard to uh, that's hard to really um, pinpoint because it has many strands of of polyphony in it. So it, it's sharing features with the the visual representation of the, the waterfall. Uh, flying, of course, we, we might get upward motion and 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 uh, uh, some sort of uh, large but quick gesture. Um, so that's that's what I would call mimetic. And then the final category would be affective, and uh, this is where. Uh, where the music in some way captures the emotional resonance of a person, place, thing, or situation. So that it, it's not describing, um, uh, a shared sort of outward feature, but describing the music is in some way, uh, attending to the subjective nature of that thing, mm-hmm. that how we should feel about it. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the examples I suppose are legion, but you can, you can think of uh, horror music and high shrieking sounds that, that do instill a little bit of uh, apprehension in, in, in uh, moviegoers. Uh, I, think that, I think that the best movie music is a, a little bit of a combination of all three. There's some conventional element. There's some mimetic quality to the music and, uh, and 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 a hopefully powerful affective resonance.
0: I will use uh, some aspects of uh, of your very informative answer to segue into another question that touches a bit about uh, that touches a bit on the topic of uh, mimetic concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to stay with your research in orchestration as you're the first person to propose the sunrise topic uh, in orchestral music in your dissertation. Now, of course, as a composer myself, I have intuitively presupposed the existence of such a topic. And natural context was addressed in few music classes, though without a specific focus on sunrise. On a basic level, an experienced listener would certainly apply mimetic concepts to music influenced by operas, movies, and programmatic music, such as shimmering strings to represent the shimmering sky. You just mentioned waterfalls and and falling. A horn melody to recall hunting parties at the break of dawn. A gradually rising register to represent the rising sun. You also mentioned flying. A luminous arrival of an orchestral tutti for the showing of uh, the entire solar disk. Uh, as someone who is probably uh, the the one specialist on this topic uh, nowadays, could you explain what goes into an orchestral topic beyond the mimesis of common practice and repertoire? Uh, What repertoire and research led you to arrive at the topic considering previous literature about it did not exist? Um, What uh, listening repertoire would you recommend to someone who would be interested in uh, pursuing the line of inquiry,
1: sure. um, well, I, I have to say that I, I'm not, uh, a, as you pointed out, with your own intuitions, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not the only person who's who's made mention of the sun. What I call the sunlight topic, because uh, as we'll see, there's there's also sunsets, mm-hmm. um, and and I think I think really it, it's. The, the, in, in some ways the most basic and most fascinating question here is why hasn't anyone else done this before? So I, 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 didn't, I didn't happen upon something that wasn't already out there in the musical culture and, and, and something that I, I, I think has been with uh, musicians for many hundreds of years. So it, in some ways uh, <laughs> it's a rather obvious thing uh, but the difficulty lies in in explaining uh, the the sunrise as a as a topic uh, or sunlight in general as a topic, and it, it, it's there that I think that, that there's been a gap in the literature. Uh, maybe I should start with how I I'll start with your middle question, sort of how I arrived at at the topic. Okay. Um, it was. Uh, it was through Schoenberg's gearleader um, originally. There, there have been people who have written about Sunrise, uh, musicologists, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But my experience was, was really born of the music and not from reading uh, musicology, that, that came, came after. It came from a very profound moment uh, in my own music listening experience, one where without any knowledge of Schoenberg's program for the Gira Leader, um, I I, I had a revelation while listening to the opening of of that piece, the the orchestral uh, prelude, um, realizing that Schoenberg is is trying to paint a sunset. And my intuition, uh, much to my delight, proved to be right. Of course, uh, Schoenberg's uh, girl leader opens with uh, dusk and the pre- so the first song of the, of the cycle is one describing um, uh, a scene after the sun has set. And of course the, uh, the previous orchestral prelude is one where Schoenberg paints the sunset in music. Uh, So that's how I I came to the topic, was not actually through the sunrise, but through the sunset, uh, Mm -hmm. which has actually, to to the best of my knowledge, never been uh, discussed uh, in in the musicological discourse uh, prior to to my dissertation. Um, In terms of the previous literature, I I really think it's Elaine Sissman, the musicologist from Columbia University who, who first wrote about the sunrise as a topic in, uh, in 2013. And then again, in, in 2014, um, she's, uh, uh among other things, uh, a specialist in that, in the music and the, the cultural, uh, milieu of, of Haydn mm-hmm. and, uh, she's, she's written uh, two articles that, that point out um, the sunrise topic, uh, though they're very brief. And uh, I guess, as, as amazing as those two articles are, I, I was, I was left wondering what constitutes the topic. So I guess I, I felt after after having such a, a vivid experience with uh, Schoenberg's girl leader uh, i wanted to know why i was able to identify without any um without any prompting so without a program note or a title or mm-hmm. or the usual ways that we come to conventionally associate uh, music with a, a, a non-musical object or situation or event i uh, i was left wondering why what, what is it about human listening human cognition human perception art history why why are we so susceptible to uh to being given a type of information in one modality and uh, coming to understand that information in a completely different modality Mm -hmm. and that that's so i guess that's the beginning of the adventure for me um if, maybe we should move to your last question, which is what sort of repertoire, uh, and we'll, we'll circle yes. back to your first question. Yeah. So I, I've gone on to find many, many examples uh, of, of the sunrise topic, and they're not all quite the same. Um, they, uh, they do appear in, in different ways and in different guises uh, across uh, historical changes, cultural changes, and from composer to composer. But uh, I'll just run down a list maybe of uh, composers who, uh, who have made uh, explicit reference to, uh, to Sunrise or Sunset. They include Haydn, Verdi, Wagner, Grieg, Rimsky-Korsakov, uh, Richard Strauss, Nielsen, Debussy, Dandy, Sibelius, Schoenberg, of course, Bartok, uh, and Ravel, um, and and that constitutes quite a, a wide span of time and a diverse group of composers and and mm-hmm. uh, and styles. Um, I think that we could probably, if if a musicologist out there is, is interested. Uh, I think we could find that the roots of this topic extend back into um, uh, pre-classical times I- into Italian opera of the uh, uh, 16th century that's a hunch I don't have I don't have, a, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a, a solid body of evidence to defend that hunch but I would I would encourage if, if any musicologist is dying for a, a, a an interesting project that that might be one.
0: I uh, wish to prompt you for the
1: sure.
0: Beyond the Mimesis.
1: Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I've, I've conveniently le- left out the most important what, what question. What goes into this
0: <laughs> orchestral topic, Beyond the Mimesis, a common practice
1: in that. Yeah, so I. I you know, I, I think this is a very, a very good question because the, the thing that's lacking in the previous literature, and to some degree in, in my own work, because I don't think the, I don't think the question is, is nearly settled yet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, is how, how does this thing work? So, we, we can take a few different approaches to, to, to asking that question. How does a, a sunrise or a sunset representation work? Um, the first way we might look at it is from a, a sort of traditional musicological or music theoretical vantage point, it would be to say, gather up a few examples of, of these types of representations and start to uh, assess their, their common features. Um, and so, uh, Elaine Sisman uh, points out, I think, the most um, uh, the most powerful, and and they're, they're basic, but they're powerful features of the representation. And that is that they generally move from low to high in terms mm-hmm. of tessitura, and uh, they feature a prolonged form of crescendo. And I think that those, uh, I think Elaine Sissman is absolutely correct in, in saying that they're, they're probably the most um, outstanding features, that they, they stand out the most when you gather this body of, of works together. They, they all will have, uh, they, they all share a general rising motion and a general intensification. Um, in my own research, I've identified two what I call uh, typologies for the sunrise, um, one which is an, an unbroken or continuous crescendo. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can imagine uh, the, these things take uh, sometimes three or four minutes to unfold and the crescendo is consistently growing across those three or four minutes. Um, and then a second typology uh, that that is one that folds back upon itself. I don't have a better name other than a type two topology. Okay. <laughs> uh, but these are uh, these are sunrises and uh, also sunsets where instead of a continuous crescendo, or in the case of a, a sunset, a continuous decrescendo, we actually get an interruption and a folding back to 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 some sort of starting point again. So we could imagine a tessitura that grows in range um, and and intensifies, but rather than culminating in its intensification, uh, it pauses and goes back to a lower starting point, pitch-wise, and a lower intensity point in terms of orchestration and and dynamics, and then proceeds to get slightly louder than the last Mm -hmm. one, and then recedes again, and then grows finally to a, a, a massive crescendo.
0: Now this is uh, this is quite a useful prolongation technique that composers use.
1: Very useful, and and this uh, this this technique is independent of harmony. It's mm-hmm. it's de- of, or it's, it's not independent of harmony. It's it's independent of harmonic consideration. Yes. In, in that uh, it happens in tonal music. It happens in post tonal music uh again i'd be willing to uh wager that it also happens in in maybe pre-common era tonal music Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah at least in in some in in some uh demonstrable way so those are the two the two types and and so those are musical basic musical considerations that we might we might talk about um a further level of of consideration and and one that I I hope will uh, be a a significant portion of my uh, career as a researcher is is looking at the orchestrational choices that composers make um, in in trying to affect this type of rising crescendo. And especially in these type two typologies where where it's a non-continuous form of crescendo, um, it it could get pretty boring pretty quickly, I would think, if the orchestration remains similar across repetitions and and growing out this orchestration. So there there are some some very interesting questions um, concerning how how it is that, that composers sustain interest at the level of orchestration um, how do they uh, end things? How do they begin things? Uh, and what happens in between endings and beginnings?
0: Now you have uh, you have yourself composed three part uh, cycle depicting sunset, dusk, and sunrise. You have uh, in a way uh, um, shown a practically. Uh, a manifestation of your research. And mm-hmm. um, specifically of your 2017 work for orchestra in the setting sun, still life. In an interview with uh, Chris Maskell, you say that you find it easier to conceive darker timbres than uh, brighter ones. I find this very interesting for someone focused on uh, sunrises. Uh, how has your research about uh, sunlight in orchestral music Impacted on a practical level, you're writing for orchestra. So, did did you, in a way, use your dissertation to prove a certain point or to to develop, uh, you know, the the type two typology, for example, or any other typology? Mm -hmm. Has it become easier to conceive lighter and more luminous timbres with the advancement of your theory of orchestrating sunrises? And if so, how?
1: Well, I don't think it's become any easier for me. I, uh, I, I, I do tend to prefer still dark uh, somber timbres uh, as an overall you know, generalization of, of my music. Um, well, it's very interesting because the, the three pieces in this cycle uh, um, came at various stages of my research. And I have a, a particular affinity for uh, "In the Setting Sun," which was written in 2014, at, at the very beginning of this adventure. And it uh, it depicts a sunset, uh, and and no doubt it's my attempt to respond in music to my original intuition from from Schoenberg, Schoenberg, Schoenberg. though uh, uh, though sadly I. I can't uh, I can't say that uh, that I've I've matched or even uh, bested Schoenberg? Of course, his his sunset is is just absolutely magnificent. Um, but I, I chose a different approach. Uh, Schoenberg, it turns out after my years of research, when we come back to Schoenberg, that he has a very complex approach to the type two typology, which is to 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 use repeated instances of music uh, in order to uh, allow the listener to understand a contour. And maybe before I answer this question, we could, we could just come back to um, uh, what goes into an orchestral topic beyond the, the mimesis and the repertoire, because this is, this is the real challenge, I think, uh, to, to any future research is that there's no there's no good semiotic reason in, an inst- in a given instant to underst- for us to understand the, the, the depiction uh, from any one particular point in a sunrise, meaning that it's a contour that's built up over time. And, it, and so it involves uh, a whole bunch of cognitive and perceptual features that, that I think are, are necessary to attend to if we're going to try to find an explanation for this type of sign. Uh, you know, most-
0: Excuse me most, to interrupt, but, yeah? but- Excuse me to interrupt, but music is a temporal art and uh, sunrise is a temporal event. Uh, it makes sense that uh, a, a sign would not be a singular point in time for either of those.
1: Well, but when you look when you look at most uh, most types of signification in music, they occupy a very, very brief amount of time.'re uh, they're, they're the most uh, poignant in, in many ways, uh, symbol systems in music are relatively brief, so they can be things like, motives. Uh, uh, we could think of light motifs in, in Wagner. Um, you know, these are these are not extended in time over many minutes, such that you, you might forget their particular uh, characteristics. They're very short, very brief, um, highly charged instances in music for the most part. I think what sets uh, the sunrise apart and, and maybe even questions whether it is in fact a topic. Uh, a, to, a topic theorist might take exception with this uh, because of the length of time that, that the, the contour takes to unfold in order to do its thing. Um, Haydn wrote uh, a, a very quick uh, sunrise that lasts, you know, less than a minute in his uh, Symphony Number no. 6 but it still is a little bit longer than, than many, uh, many other types of signs. By the time we get to someone like Schoenberg, if you think about the Gura leader as an entire form, he kind of does a sunset followed by a sunrise that, that takes over an hour to, to unfold in a, in a certain sense. And so for me, the, the, the extra musical um, features of, of, of these types of representations really point to um, music cognition, to the way we attend to things and to perception because they have to they have to unfold over a large period of time and we have to be somehow invested in that time in order to recognize the thing.
0: <laughs> so does this mean that uh, maybe the, orchestral topic of sunrise depends a lot on the notion of uh, convergence of evidence, also known as consilience, which is also something that you you are interested in. For those of of our listeners who don't know what this is, it is the principle that uh, evidence from independent and sometimes unrelated sources can converge on strong conclusions. So in a way, not a single note a single instrument does not indicate a sunrise or a sunset, but together when they converge, uh, when a a number of of, of independent notes converge, there is the strong conclusion of a sunset or a sunrise. I am of course simplifying a lot here, (laughs) but I wonder whether this is something that can be considered.
1: It can, and, and I think this is the real challenge for, for the sunrise as a as a sign is that it it doesn't really have a location. It mm-hmm. has no you can't point to a, a place where it happens. It it has to unfold in order at, at least to a certain degree for it for it to be perceived and then cognized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, consilience. Well, let's let's take a step back here because consilience means uh, a broad set of things. It seems to me, yeah. uh, it's uh, it, it's a program in the sciences that uh, seeks to unify knowledge. So this, much like your your unification of many notes into a sunrise, uh, consilience is a um, it, it, it's a a program, I would say, a program in the sciences and social sciences that seeks uh, seeks to unify the methods and and maybe even the epistemologies of the sciences, the social sciences, the arts, and the humanities, um, as sort of put forward by E.O. Wilson, the uh, the the biologist from Harvard in his 1997, I think, book of this of the same title. Um, I've been interested in consilience for some time. Uh, we're we're straying maybe a little bit from the sunrise topic. I don't know if that's
0: it's it's perfectly okay. It's an ongoing okay, well, conversation. We
1: can, we can come back to uh, we can come back to the the sunrise. Um. I don't know, do you have a follow-up for a question for consilience? I, well, I could...
0: uh, I- indeed, um, you have taught a graduate class at McGee University. It addresses uh, arguments and counter arguments about uh, an ongoing uh, epistemological debate concerning consilience. Uh, and I, I wonder, can we explain for, uh, for our listeners who are not specialists, Mm-hmm. What this debate uh, consists of, and um, I wonder, are you uh, are you personally taking sides in in this epistemological debate?
1: Sure. Well, uh, uh, like I said, Consilience is a, a research program that seeks to unify, um, let's call them, modes of knowledge um, across the traditional um, boundaries that we've established for for knowledge making which are the you know roughly the natural sciences the social sciences the arts and humanities um, some people have seen this as as a power grab as an attempt by science to science to to, to uh, establish their uh, the, the modes of of uh, knowledge-making that are common to the natural sciences in the domain of, of the humanities. So there, there's been, uh, we might say a defensive reaction against consilience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of promotion of consilience, especially in the social sciences and in, in some uh, corners of the humanities. Um, much of this uh, Came uh, to a head in uh, the late '90s, uh, and it was it was in some ways in some ways intermingled with the culture wars that were happening in in North America at the time between uh, let's be very general here uh, um, postmodernism and uh, evolutionary psychology and biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't get involved in those debates. I I don't I don't see the the utility in, in taking a hard position one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, my own experience with consilience really comes from uh, being a student at McGill University in the music department in the music faculty. And seeing that we have a, a wide variety of ways of, of conducting research into music, uh, McGill is uh, one of several universities that invested heavily in technology in in uh, in, in scientific the scientific pursuit of music, mm-hmm. um, while at the same time being a conservatory that trains musicians traditionally. Um, and uh, being in such an, an interdisciplinary environment, it, it seemed to me that one, one thing that consilience could do for music research was to better articulate uh, the, the methods by which we, we undertake interdisciplinary endeavors. Um, so that was my, my broad interest. It, it stemmed from a, um, a, a seminar that I took with Professor Stephen McAdams who is a, a psychologist, uh, an ex, uh, experimental psychologist, who does a lot of work on music perception and cognition? Um, but I, I feel like can you like find some
0: of those methods
1: in in music psychology, or or just no, in uh, in, broadly in
0: research? Well, in research sure, computers.
1: sure. So if uh, I'll I'll keep with music as as an Mm -hmm. example, because I'm not a specialist in consilience uh, writ large. But uh, in music, you know, if you're a musicologist, you might uh, undertake archival research. Most of your methods are going to be tied to constructing arguments based on perhaps historical evidence and and, uh, coming up with uh, an idea about the past that is unique, and then gathering evidence in support of this idea, and then making an, making an argument uh, from that evidence. Um, research conducted in, say, music psychology would would seek to understand how it is that we come to experience music um, uh, in terms of uh, perceptions. So, how does the um, auditory system in a human being work? Uh, What are are the biomechanical parameters of listening? Uh, It might uh, investigate or or use methods borrowed from, and evidence borrowed from neuroscience. And and so those are uh, two examples that are utterly different. And and I think it's very strange in the academy to have uh, in one department, someone doing archival research and somebody else uh, you know, hooking, hooking strange contraptions up to people's heads to, to measure cognition or perception. Uh, but there's a unique opportunity, it seems to me, for us to, to work across these disciplinary boundaries in order to, uh, in order to make new modes of in- inquiry into music. So that, that's will... my, my interest in consilience was just in seeing like, h- how do we talk to one another across these disciplinary divides?
0: Well, I will, I will use uh, this uh, as a segue to my next question. Sure. Uh, you mentioned uh, a number of disciplines uh, in your answers uh, that uh, you have touched upon that you have read about. Um, and. Uh, you talk about interdisciplinary research. Uh, you reference a lot of books from, uh, and authors from different disciplines. And I have to say it's, uh, it's, it's uh, refreshingly different than what uh, sometimes I have experienced with a lot of narrow specialization in the, in the field of art even. Now, the the refocusing on uh, narrower and narrower specialization in, uh, in our education, and in many ways, the decline of the public role of homo universalis, um, I believe, contributes to the regression of what used to be considered complementary and even related disciplines in the antiquity, uh, the trivium and the quadrivium. How do you see? Uh, the future of arts education with respect to uh, interdisciplinary research it's and very, the balance between interdisciplinary research, narrow specialization, and uh, collaboration?
1: It's a very good question. Uh, I think, like many domains of human activity, education has evolved and perhaps ostensibly to meet the needs of a present society. So in the Middle Ages, when the trivium and the quadrivium uh, were were institutionalized, we might understand their, you know, their reason for being to be to meet the needs of of the given society. Um, we, We tend to maybe over romanticize in some respects the past but I think here that oh, that the the idea of holding on to uh, what might otherwise be called classical education isn't an over romanticization and it is something that that maybe f- at least to me feels like it, it might be being lost in in some areas of the academy uh, I think that many of the people who have uh, pushed back and, and maybe even pushed back quite hard against consilience. Uh, those who have seen it as a, as a power grab by, by science trying to impose its methodological uh, uh, arena onto the humanities might feel the same way that, that, that we need to double down on a, on a classical education. I choose a different approach. I think that I think that it's just clear that society is evolving to be more and more specialized. And, and I would encourage universities to retain as best they can a, a classical education. But it seems to me that the, the technology is going to change the marketplace and, and thus change the university itself in such mm-hmm. ways that we're, we already are privileging stem subjects and, uh, and the scientific method. Um, and, and so I, I, rather than, rather than simply fight or, or ignore these developments, I think that there's a way for people uh, to learn to collaborate with one another. And, and I think this is where the real promise of, of consilience lies, not, not in the the, the debate of which methodologies are better or more suited for a topic uh, or for a given research program, but how people from different disciplines can actually come together and learn from one another, meaning step out of maybe their, their own domains just a little bit, just enough to, to uh, engage with the other and and see if, if there's uh, if there's value in doing things in a new way or a little bit differently. And I, I think for me, the great value is in collaboration. And um, I think we're seeing this more and more in uh, being privileged in certain areas in the humanities. Um, and I think there's a way to do it without losing uh, uh the, the, the what what defines the humanities uh, the, the the humanistic mode of inquiry um, but but I think it's clear that 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 further specialization is is probably the way the the, the, the future way is going that humanity to go. is
0: going
1: well and and the sciences themselves and and even programs themselves I think are becoming more and more narrowly focused um, so, so the question is, if, if we're going to uh, continue to, uh, to along this path of narrow expertises, uh, a counterbalance I, I think would be to invest heavily as people, as, uh, as researchers, as uh, program administrators, as governments with money, <laughs> Into, uh, in, into creating arenas for these specialists to meet, to learn a little bit about, about one another and to collaborate. And I think in music, this is, this is uh, especially um, interesting for me because I, I've spent now a, a great deal of my uh, PhD time in a music perception and cognition lab not as an expert in cognition uh, or perception, but as, a, as an artist and, and a music theorist. And I think that that time has really helped me develop uh, a new appreciation for uh, the psychology of music. And, and I think for me, the question is, how can we get better, better research questions and better research methods? And I think that that takes a meeting of the minds, so to speak, I think that I think that scientists and humanists and artists uh, are are better served not by some doctrine about methodology, but by actually just sitting in a room and (laughs) and figuring out their common their common interests and how they might pursue them.
0: Now, um, uh, thank you for this very, uh, very detailed answer. I'm making a point of asking each guest about ethics. What would you consider a point of professional ethics in your own research interests?
1: I'm gonna I'm going to sound like a, a broken record here, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that uh, that for me, interdisciplinary collaboration is itself, um, uh, f- at least in my experience, the 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 point where I've had to think about my ethics as a researcher the most, um, uh, that that could take many different forms. Uh, It can can be sort of confronting a situation where um, a researcher in a a given discipline feels that they know or understand the types of questions that another discipline ought to be asking. Um, and the 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 way I've had to respond to these situations, you know, whether they're in uh, research collaborations, in teaching environments, uh, interacting with colleagues, and so uh, I guess the best answer I can I can give you is that ethically, um, I've I've come to uh, I've come to a, a point in, in my interactions with other people that seeks the win-win-win the model,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: is, which is, what, is the, what is the best way for me to find value, I mean here research value, knowledge value in, in every interaction with, with people, uh, oftentimes where I, I don't fully understand what it is they do and and i don't I don't have a, a position of expertise. I'm not that's sure that's an adequate answer, but
0: it is it is it, it it helps me ask the next question, Have you experienced a conflict between your personal morals and your professional ethics? Now, I understand that this is something that uh, that mostly lawyers can talk about. <laughs> knowing, Knowing that someone is a murderer and yet defending them. Uh, however, I w- I wonder whether this also applies to um, to collaborative interdisciplinary research like the one you're doing.
1: Yeah, I I think I think it does. Um, hmm. Well, I think that I, I, I think that I have had ethical dilemmas in collaborations in the past. Uh, they've taken on several different forms. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, is the, the difference between um, I, having ideas in the humanities and having ideas in the sciences. Uh, and this is, this is maybe somewhere where I, I actually had to modify my ethics, that I, I was challenged by, by being cultured maybe in the humanities and not understanding the collaborative nature of the sciences. And it, it forced me to ha- have to admit that, uh, that I was behaving unethic- unethically. And what I mean by that is that I, I had an idea for a research project and uh, I think in the humanities, we, we tend to play our cards close to the chest and, and carve out our little space. I'm going to be an expert in uh, the music of Boulez. And, mm-hmm. and so my findings about my, my domain, I keep close until I publish them because once they're published, nobody can steal them. Okay. Uh, and I think that's something that, that we see a lot in the humanities. Uh, in the sciences, the, there's much more of a collaborative nature of, of sharing data, sharing ideas, open science as, it, as it's called. And uh, I, I had to make an adjustment to my own way of doing research when confronted by, by the methodologies in the sciences. Uh, and I think that it's helped me to be a better collaborator and a, a more open colleague. Um, and I, I've also seen the opposite. Uh, I've seen times where, where collaborations have ended in, in tears for people because mm-hmm. they, they weren't able to agree on, on how to proceed with things like data collection and sharing data and things like that.
0: You are now uh, living in in Europe. I uh, just realized that uh, the notion of open science and sharing uh, is very different between North America and Europe. Uh, I was not aware until I immigrated here in North America that in North America, people actually pay to submit a journal, uh, to submit an article to a journal, and they actually have to pay to access the journal later. They don't even get a, an author's copy, and and you have to pay to download your own article, and uh, it's, it's all based on a profit scheme that benefits publishers rather than authors, uh, whereas in many countries in Europe, it's still holding on to the the old type of notion of academic publishing uh, people like my mother are paid to publish by an academic publisher who uh, sells uh, the the books at a fraction of a cost and they can be always accessed for free in the university library now that you're living in Europe have you encountered uh, this type of difference how how do you How do you find the adjustment between one system and the other has or has not influenced your your research and uh, access access to publications also?
1: Well, I'm in a way just beginning my adventure here. Uh, I'm I'm now a a postdoctoral researcher in musicology at the University of Uvascula, which is in Finland. Um, It's a a very science-oriented. Uh, environment. Um, I, I, I still think that in Europe, there are certain scientific publications that do require payment for, uh, for uh, publication, but it's, as quite, you say,
0: new,
1: it's quite new and, and, and it's for some of the larger and flashier journals that, that have big online presence. Um, I think the, 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 the first thing that, that struck me being in Europe was um, uh, a seminar I attended at the University of Helsinki uh, and, and speaking with, with the musicologists there and realizing that, that the students upon graduating from their PhD had their, their dissertations published as books by the university's press, which was funded by, Uh, government money and outside Mm -hmm. foundation money such that they had a massive room, a little warehouse of past dissertations all in book form. Uh, And and a very kind musicologist uh, pulled me into this room and uh, I mean, I had just met him and said, Oh, you, you must have, uh, uh, you must leave with some books. And I basically (laughs) walked out with (laughs) seven Books that otherwise would have cost me in, in excess of seven hundred dollars in, in mm-hmm. Canada, uh, and and so the the idea of open publishing and of, of supporting uh, supporting scientific endeavors, and here I mean the the science in the European sense of, of mm-hmm. research, you know, broadly speaking, yes. including the humanities. Um, I, I was I was dumbfounded that that this kind man had taken me into a room filled with books and let me walk out with as many <laughs> as I could carry. <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, maybe I should acknowledge him. That was uh, Professor Ero Tarasti, uh, a right. very kind and generous man. Um,
0: it definitely seems like it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in, in many ways, very generous. Uh, so I, I haven't been here long enough. You know, uh, it's, it's been a year and a half to To really have experienced the full spectrum of, of differences in, okay. in terms of open publications, but I, but certainly um, certainly data sets that are gathered uh, within a the university, uh, there's there's a large amount of pressure that they be open to the public, mm-hmm. that they be accessible, that that the way they're constructed be such that they're easily accessible, so not not obscured in any way uh, I, I imagine that that many places in north america do urge that kind of openness with with scientific data um, but but certainly the culture here is 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 one of uh govern uh, top-down funding for research and that since the public is so, high, or the public purse is so heavily invested in research, that the research outcomes need to be publicly accessible. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, if nothing else, an incredibly healthy model for research.
0: On this uh, optimistic note, uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us today thank you i uh i'm sure our listeners will be uh, thrilled to um, explore further all the avenues you have proposed um and uh would you like to uh, to say uh, to say something in conclusion
1: only that uh in in the spirit of open science if uh, if any of your listeners um have an interest, and a binding interest, in, in pursuing uh, topical signification that, that's challenging, such as the sunrise or sunset topics. Uh, these are areas in, in music research that, that really need communities of people to be working on them. And if any of your listeners are ever interested in pursuing things like that, uh, I'd be happy to speak with them or, or communicate with them if they have questions.
0: And uh, thank you Our relevant links will be in the description of the episode, uh, which we are going to conclude with a recording of uh, Mo Tizra's work in the Setting Sun. Thank you everyone for being with us today and have a lovely day.